Just kidding. Hey everybody, welcome to the third episode of Undead Airlock, a weekly podcast dedicated to your spooky education and edification. I'm your host, Hannah Selector, and I am so glad that you're here again. Did anyone else feel like this week was incredibly tough to get through? I have been absolutely dragging all week long. Thank goodness I perked up for my jam-packed weekend. We had birthdays and murder mysteries and friendly hangouts but few am I tired. A little bit of housekeeping. I was chatting up a friend who had an Android device. Hi, Brad! And, duh, I forgot to mention we're also up and running on Pocket Cast. Just search for Undead Airlock and there I'll be. I know the movie descriptions in the last episode were a little lacking in the history-slash-writer-slash-director info. At that point, the show felt like it was getting a little long, so I dialed back my information density. This week, though, I think we might run a little bit on the short side, so all of that info will get put into our seven movies for the week. And don't worry, our plans for next week's episode will more than make up for our smaller time together this week. Again, I want to thank all of you who've reached out to say hi by Twitter or email, and uh, to thank all the new Twitter followers. You guys are great and lovely and fun, and I'm excited to keep getting to know everybody. You're all my favorite. Guys, it's me, future Hannah, from the edits. Is it not crazy how much caffeine I've clearly had while recording this episode? Prepare for more fast talking. Okay, see you later. So, what are we getting into this week? Glad you asked. This week, we're going to take a run at our funny bones. Get it? Like a skeleton, because it's a horror podcast. And learn a little bit about horror comedy. Not two words you'd necessarily picture getting along so well, horror and comedy, but actually it's a well-established and really entertaining little subgenre. So, how do we define horror comedy, or comedy horror if you prefer, academically speaking? Comedy horror is a literary and film subgenre that combines elements of both comedy and horror, often for the purpose of satire. When writing about or studying horror comedy, scholars have presented generally three subtypes. First, we have black comedies, Stories where topics and events that are usually treated seriously are instead treated in a satirical manner, while still being portrayed as the negative elements that they are. A good example of this is the zombie movie Shaun of the Dead. Then we've got parodies, media that's an imitation of the style of a particular writer, artist, or genre, with deliberate exaggeration for comic effect. Like you'll see in movies like Cabin in the Woods. Or, finally, we have spoofs. Humorous imitations of the content of a particular thing, typically a film or a particular genre of film, where the characteristic features are exaggerated for comedy, like in the Scary Movie franchise. Now, horror comedies are a lot like dipping a french fry in a frosty. It doesn't seem like it should work, but it actually does. Horror and comedy may seem completely opposite on the surface. Laughing and screaming are really different reactions to very different emotions. But if you think about the two genres in parallel, you'll notice a lot of similarities. The construction of a scare and the construction of a laugh are pretty much the same. There's a setup, followed by a payoff. Both rely heavily on the timing for the best results. If the tension isn't right or the anticipation isn't built correctly, both a laugh or a scare are going to be ineffective. So, 
While horror and comedy might be very emotionally and psychologically different, they're very similar in structure. This is why, in combining these two genres and making best use of their similar builds, storytellers and filmmakers can create some really memorable and terrifyingly funny work. Besides, horror and amusement are both pretty involuntary, instinctive, primitive stuff. We don't have to sit and analyze their effectiveness like we might with a more serious subject matter, like a TV drama or a movie romance. Or that indie movie that your film school friend says was really good, but you think was really, really boring. We know that the success of horror and comedy are pretty much based only on our responses, the raw response that they provide us. A film or a piece of literature doesn't have to choose one focus over the other in a horror comedy. Both the styles can be an effective way to keep audiences listening or on their toes and get a big response from the sheer unpredictability of both things. To put it more simply, when tension is built, it has to be released. And whether that's through a scream or a laugh, you can bet that it's going to feel good. Talking about horror comedy and his new film Get Out, Jordan Peele told Cinema Blend in an interview, Horror and comedy, they're like two sides of the same coin. Any really successful or great horror movie you go and see an audience, there's going to be laughter from nervousness. They're both about building the tension and releasing it in some way. But most important for me, in order to achieve both of them, you need to have a certain groundedness, a consistency. So for me, it was like, look, this will work if I apply this absurd story to reality. Well put, Jordan. But sometimes, horror comedies aren't meant to leave the audience completely terrified. Sometimes they're meant to poke fun at horror as a whole, or to make light of our deepest fears. To call genre tropes to the carpet and keep humanity from taking its worries too seriously. There's a great continuum of diversity between a horror film with comedic moments and a comedy film with horror as its basis. Some horror comedies focus more on horror, while others focus more on humor and the variety is what makes the genre so much fun. When a horror comedy wants to focus more on laughs, it'll tend to take well-known features of horror films and try to exploit their familiarity for laughs. It takes familiar tropes and circumstances and turns them on their heads. The tension typically is used to cause a scream, which is really the result of a punchline, and it's usually harmless, or it's so over-the-top and dark that the audience can't help but laugh. But in a horror comedy that's more concerned with solid scares, humorous moments can actually be used to create suspense. Lulling the audience into a false sense of security, only to suddenly subvert a previously funny pattern with a frightening moment. So let's take a look at comedy horror at work in literature. Horror and comedy have been linked with each other since the early days of horror novels. Just after the publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, comedic parodies started to appear more often. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving has often been cited as an excellent classical example of horror comedy, especially since its premise was based on mischief typically found during the holiday Halloween. The story made readers laugh at the bumbling Ichabod Crane character in one moment and cry out in terror in the next at the horrible headless horseman. Edgar Allan Poe blended humor and horror on the same continuum, and many 19th century authors used black humor in their horror stories. Robert Bloch, the author responsible for Psycho and American Gothic, called horror and comedy opposite sides of the same coin. The dynamic of horror comedy works really, really well in comic form, and in my personal experience, webcomics in particular are doing especially excellent work in this subgenre. There's just something so enjoyable about a well-drawn and interesting scary scene followed by a quip from a favorite character or a sight gag. 
There are so many hugely talented web creators out there right now. And if you haven't looked to webcomics yet to scratch your horror itch, I suggest you get out there right now and do it. A few of my personal favorite horror webcomics, with excellent comedic and satirical moments blended in, worth checking out are The Last Halloween by Abby Howard, A Ghost Story by B, Brood Hollow by Chris Straub, and Not Drunk Enough by Tess Stone. Don't worry, guys, I'll be tweeting proper links for finding these excellent comics and giving a shout-out to their creators later on. And, of course, we couldn't very well talk about horror comedy without talking about films. In comedy horror films, gallows horror, which is grim and ironic humor in a desperate or hopeless situation, is a common element throughout. While comedy horror films provide scares for audiences, they also provide something that dramatic horror films don't. As Bruce Hallenbach points out in his Chronological History of Comedy Horror Films, horror comedy films give us permission to laugh at our fears, to whistle past the cinematic graveyard, and feel secure in the knowledge that the monsters can't get us. In the era of silent films, the source material for early comedy horror came from the stage instead of literature. One example, The Ghost Breaker, a 1914 film, was based on a play from 1909 of the same name. The film's horror elements were more interesting to the audience than the comedy elements. In the U.S., following the traumas of World War I, film audiences were still willing to watch horror on the screen, but they preferred that it be tempered with humor. Often cited as the pioneering comedy horror film is One Exciting Night, based on the Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood play The Bat from 1920. The film was written, directed, and produced by D.W. Griffith, a terrible racist asshole who noticed the stage success of the horror comedy genre and foresaw a cinematic translation. The plot of One Exciting Night revolves around the murder of a bootlegger and the humorous attempts of the movie's cast to uncover the true murderer. Potential viewer beware, One Exciting Night does include blackface performance. But early films like Griffith's had not quite struck that perfect balance between horror and comedy, and earlier comedy horror works saw relatively little commercial success. Later films improved the balance, however, and took more sophisticated approaches to the horror comedy genre. So, films from the 1940s, like Crazy Nights or Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, are generally credited as the first commercially successful horror comedy films. Their success legitimized the genre, and finally established it as a commercially viable film option. Speaking of horror movies, that brings us to the second half of our show, where we'll be continuing with our 31 horror films for the 31 days of October. Hey, it's Hannah from the edits again. Did I not tell you about the caffeine? Jeez. I mean, you would not believe the number of deep, gasping breaths I've snipped out so far because I won't take a breath between sentences. Anyway, back to crazy coffee, lady. Can you believe we're halfway through October already? Time sure does fly. This week's actually a little bit different because, rather than basing the films I list on the subject matter of the podcast, I actually chose the content of this podcast based on the movies that I had selected for the 31 days. All of the movies this week are some form of horror comedy. Alrighty. Movie number 15, House of the Long Shadows. House of the Long Shadows is a 1983 horror parody film which was directed by Pete Walker. The movie's based on the 1913 novel Seven Keys to Baldpate by Earl Dare Biggers. And this movie is really special because you have four of the most iconic horror film stars of all time, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and John Carradine, all in one movie. 
The story goes that after betting his friends $20,000 that he can write a novel comparable to Wuthering Heights in just a day, author Kenneth McGee seeks inspiration and solitude in a moody Welsh manner. But when he arrives at the deserted mansion, the startled writer is met with unexpected company and is swept into the chaos of a peculiar family reunion. In addition to being thoroughly enjoyable, The House of the Long Shadows pretty perfectly blends both the humorous and the creepy. It's a horror comedy classic, to be sure. Movie 16, Grabbers. In this Irish-British monster comedy, Sierra O'Shea, who's a disgruntled, totally alcoholic policeman on a rural Irish island, is not so happy when his new partner, the spunky and work-obsessed Lisa, arrives from the big city, hoping to impress their superiors. Unfortunately, Ciaran finds himself spending almost every waking moment with spunky Lisa as the hitherto quiet island is disturbed by strange occurrences, including mutilated whale corpses, reports of monster sightings, and disappearing residents. Soon, the villagers are engaged in an all-out war with blood-sucking, tentacled aliens with a very unexpected weakness. Subtitles are recommended for this hilarious horror flick so as to get the full effect of the funny dialogue wrapped up in all that heavy Irish brogue. Film the 17th, Housebound. Housebound is a 2014 New Zealand horror comedy written, edited, and directed by Gerard Johnstone. It's his first feature-length film and his directorial debut, and who boy does he deliver with it. Small-time criminal Kylie is horrified when a judge remands her to eight months of house arrest at the home and under the care of her mother and stepfather. Kylie views her well-meaning, quirky parents as nothing but complete bores and does her best to amuse herself while ignoring her mother's insistence that spirits roam the hallways of their rural New Zealand house. As strange things start to happen around their home and continue to increase in frequency, and after a police inspector, a ghost hunter, and some weird psychiatrist become her frequent callers, Kylie is forced to admit that all is not as it should be in her parents' quaint little house. Johnstone drew inspiration for this movie from television shows like Ghost Hunter, and their influence can be seen in some of the movie's amusing moments. Movie number 18, The Visit. The Visit is a 2015 American found footage horror film written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and it represents one of the more subtle horror comedies on this list. Years after their parents' tough divorce, Tyler and his older sister Becca are preparing to meet their estranged grandparents for the first time as their anxious mom departs on a long-anticipated cruise with her boyfriend. After boarding a train to rural Pennsylvania, the siblings happily meet Nana and Pop-Pop, who at first delight the children with board games, bonfires, home cooking, and good old country hospitality. However, their strange behavior and some gruesome discoveries soon shatter the peaceful facade of the doting grandparents and their idyllic country house, and Becca and Tyler must fight to reunite with their mother before it's too late. Praise for Shyamalan's return to the screen is overwhelmingly directed at the young actors who bring Tyler and Becca to life. Their charming and often hilarious performance alone makes this film a must-see, but the well-shot spooky moments and frighteningly acted grandparents are icing on this creepy cake. Number 19, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. Tucker and Dale vs. Evil is a 2010 comedy horror movie directed by Eli Craig. 
Craig's second feature film, Little Evil, has recently become available on Netflix. Tucker and Dale vs. Evil stars some fun, recognizable names. Alan Tudyk, Tyler Labine, and Katrina Bowden, to name a few. Tudyk and Labine play a pair of well-meaning hillbillies who are mistaken for killers by a group of clueless, inept college students. The film opens on a reporter and a cameraman who sneak into a closed-off murder scene looking for anything the police missed in hopes of breaking a bigger story. But they're ambushed by a man with half of his face badly injured. Meanwhile, college students Allison, Chad, Chloe, Chuck, Jason, Naomi, Todd, Mitch, and Mike are going camping in West Virginia. When they stop for gas on a rural country road, they encounter Tucker and Dale, two well-meaning hillbillies who have just bought the vacation home of their dreams, a rundown lakefront cabin deep in the woods. When Tucker and Dale arrive at their decrepit cabin and start repairing it, nearby in the woods, Chad is telling a story about the Memorial Day Massacre a hillbilly attack which took place 20 years ago. After a series of unfortunate events, the college students mistakenly believe that Tucker and Dale are vicious killers who have kidnapped one of their friends. This is one of my favorite horror comedies of all time, and I have yet to meet someone who's disliked it. It takes teen terror tropes and turns them hilarious, and it's worth more than a single watch just to make sure you've caught every well-thought-out comedic moment. Movie number 20, Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein is a 1974 American comedy horror film written and directed by Mel Brooks. The movie stars Gene Wilder as the title character, a descendant of the infamous Dr. Victor Frankenstein. The supporting cast includes comedy stars like Cloris Leachman, Peter Boyle, Marty Feldman, Kenneth Mars, and Gene Hackman. The film is a loving parody of the classic horror film genre, and particularly the film adaptations of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein especially the ones made by Universal in the 1930s. In fact, most of the lab equipment used as props for young Frankenstein were actually created by Kenneth Strickfaden for the 1931 Frankenstein. To help evoke the same atmosphere as the earlier movies, Mel Brooks shot the movie entirely in black and white, and he used 1930s-style opening credits and scene transitions, things like wipes, iris outs, and fades to black. The film also has a period-appropriate score by Brooks's longtime composer, John Morris. In the film, Dr. Frederick Frankenstein, played by Gene Wilder, is a lecturing physician at an American medical school. He becomes annoyed whenever any of his students bring up the subject of his grandfather, Victor Frankenstein, the infamous mad scientist. And, to dissociate himself from his ancestor, Frederick insists that his surname is pronounced Frankenstein. When a lawyer shows up and informs him that he's inherited his family's estate in Transylvania, Frederick travels to Europe to inspect the property. When he arrives at the train station in Transylvania, he's met by a mysterious hunchbacked servant named Igor and a pretty personal assistant named Inga. The house seems to have a strange influence on Victor, and soon after he arrives, comedic chaos ensues. And last but not least, movie number 21, Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors is a 1986 American rock musical horror comedy film directed by Frank Oz. It's a film adaptation of the off-Broadway musical comedy by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman about a geeky florist shop worker who finds out his Venus flytrap can speak. That off-Broadway musical was in turn based on the low-budget 1960s movie The Little Shop of Horrors, which was directed by Roger Corman. 
Little Shop of Horrors is opened by, and often narrated by, a three-girl Greek chorus. And the movie opens on Seymour Krelborn and his colleague Audrey, working at Mushnik's flower shop in a rundown neighborhood called Skid Row in the slums of New York City. Struggling because of a lack of customers, the owner, Mr. Mushnik, decides to close the store. To save the shop, Audrey suggests that Mr. Mushnik should display a strange plant that Seymour owns. Seymour explains that he bought the plant, which he calls Audrey II, from a Chinese flower shop during a solar eclipse. Soon customers are coming from all over to Mushnik's shop, but the plant is beginning to die, and this worries Seymour. One night, when he accidentally pricks his finger, he discovers that Audrey II needs human blood to survive. This horror comedy classic stars Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, Vincent Gardenia, and Steve Martin, and also features special appearances by Jim Belushi, John Candy, Christopher Guest, and Bill Murray. Give it a watch, and if you haven't seen it before, finally understand why your hungry friends and co-workers are always quipping, Feed me, Seymour! Well, that is the end of this short episode. Remember, I want this to be the best podcast it can possibly be, and I can only do that with your help. Get in touch with me and let me know what you want to hear. Or, you know, just tell me about that great horror thing you watched, read, played, or heard about. You can reach me, as always, by email at hannahselector, that's H-A-N-N-A-H-S-E-L-E-C-T-O-R, at gmail.com, or on Twitter, at hannahselector. Lucky you, I'm already getting better at Twitter, and I try to answer every message I get. Check our show out on SoundCloud, Acast, PocketCast, and iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you have a platform you'd like to find the podcast on, let me know, and I'll do my best to get us there, too. A big thank you again to everyone who's rate, reviewed, and subscribed so far. All the great works mentioned in today's cast are going to be available on my Twitter this week in the form of our mentioned or recommended this week recap. And past show's recaps are also available on Twitter. And, as the end approaches, it's time for our Monster Masher sign-off, a set of lines from a piece of horror media that let you know how you can defeat the evil and get out alive. Don't forget, if you recognize the lines in our sign-off, hit me up on Twitter and let me know you figured it out. Or, if you have a suggestion for the Monster Masher sign-up, let me know by email or by Twitter. Take the papers that are with this, the diaries of Harker and the rest, and read them, and then find this great undead and cut off his head and burn his heart or drive a stake through it so that the world may rest from him. Until next time, everyone!